welcome to Season 5 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Sunil, man, it's great to see you. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think it's good that we're finally deciding to get back in the game here. We're going to have some good episodes coming up. It's been a little bit of a hiatus, but I think you've had some fairly big things going on over the course of the last several months, right? You just bought a new house. Well, uh, yes, uh, we moved to the East Bay. I think like there's a saying that, uh, you know, uh, the Bay, the East Bay is like heaven. Everybody ends up here at some point or something <laughs> like that. I, I forget the, the sayings on Twitter. But yes, oh, I love I'm an it. East Bay resident now. I've never heard it, but it sounds like you're uh, growing your burgeoning real estate empire. No, um, I'm not, but our guest is, uh, his name is Keith Wasserman. Uh, Keith is an incredible Twitter follow, by the way. Um, he, uh, he's the founder of Gelt, which is a real estate investment firm, uh, that has seen a tremendous amount of success after starting off by just purchasing one, one unit in Bakersfield. Yeah. I mean, when kind of prolific on Twitter, um, he's super, super, super active, but also uh, incredibly open in all of his interviews. And if you read things about him online, so I'm pretty excited about today, get to get into a little bit of detail around how we might think about investing in real estate. I'm excited. Well, you know, I think uh, this is such a hot topic right now. You have the Zillow SNL sketch, you have, uh, you know, so many people basically being, um, depressed about how they can't afford a single family home in the Bay area. Well, we asked Keith about this Austin, Miami, and a bunch more. You'll really enjoy this episode. Enjoy. Keith, it's awesome having you on the show today. I appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Where are you dialing in from? It looks like um, I'll just paint a picture for everybody that's listening in. You get this like high loft ceiling and super bright and it looks really cool. Are you in some like startup office somewhere? That's actually exactly where, where I am. Um, so I'm in the Demuso headquarters. I'm a, also a co-founder of a financial technology company and the office happens to be really close to our house. Our Gelt office, which is our main real estate office, is a little further and no one's really using the office still to this day. So if I need some peace and quiet, I just go to the office here in Santa Monica and I'm usually the only one or usually the, the other co-founder of Demuso's here and that's about it. So oh, Santa Monica. Yeah. Santa Monica is like the picture of uh, Los Angeles that everybody has in their head when they think, I'm going to go to Los Angeles and spend time in, in Los Angeles. Is it is it all that it, it's uh, made up to be? Like how do you like living there? I think so. I mean, I, I've lived here now for four years. I grew up in LA. Um, I lived most of my life in the San, San Fernando Valley, which people on the West side don't even know where it is. They, they, they think they need a passport to get to it. But um, yeah, I enjoy life on the West side. It's 20 degrees cooler. You're by the ocean. It's a high, nice quality of life. Um, definitely has some challenges in regards to like homelessness and just some different politics. But I, I, I'm born and raised in LA and this is where my home is and I'm not going anywhere. So, did you ever yeah. think you were going to leave LA? Like, did you ever think you're going to leave California? Um, probably not. I mean, I think we do have some, you know, high state income taxes and we have some, you know, political issues and some homelessness issues, but it's, uh, I think I, I'm happy paying the tax to live in the best climate in the U S and, um, to be able to go to the mountains, the beaches, the, you know, just, and my whole family's here. So yeah. I, I like living here. And we like, we, we force our kids to say it's the greatest state in the nation. Like you're lucky you're here. We're all happy we're here. Did you ever think about the Bay area? I mean, I was talking to my wife and I'm like, if we ever moved anywhere else, where would it be? And I, I really love the Carmel Monterey area. I think that's really beautiful. 
um, and you know, scenic and just really nice quality of life. And I'm a golfer. So you got some of the best golf in the world up there. Um, so I think, uh, that would be a close second to LA maybe for me, but, uh, and San Diego, I like San Diego also if I want to go South. So, and yeah. You, and you appreciate tacos. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have, we have some of the bombest Mexican food here in LA. We have, we have, it's a melting pot, right? So you, you could go to any of the best restaurants in any different culture and, and uh, LA is very large. It's a lot of smaller sub pockets, you know? Absolutely. Hey, well, speaking of California, um, let's, let's talk about, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about real estate, you know, today in the most unaffordable state in the, in the country. Um, tell us a little bit about, you, you know, what you do, Keith, and your real estate credentials uh, for, for the audience, because you have a really uh, interesting and, you know, you're quite successful. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so always, always wasn't as quite successful, uh, as an entrepreneur, I noticed the opportunity to, uh, get into the real estate business in December of 2008, actually. So you rewind the clock. It was a different period of time where our nation, you know, we were seeing foreclosures left and right, usually in the single family, uh, home market. And my cousin came to me with the opportunity to buy a fourplex in a city called Bakersfield, which is two hours North of Los Angeles. When I first heard of Bakersfield, I said, where in God's name is this place? Because people in LA have no reason really to go to Bakersfield, but it's a very industrious town based on oil and agriculture. And, uh, you know, it was like, I think the ninth largest city in California, maybe 39th largest in the U S. So, um, still had a very good sized population and we were buying things for 25 cents on the dollar. Literally we were buying fourplexes, which were usually one to four unit, uh, residences are financed with residential mortgages. So it got killed during the housing bust and we were picking up these fourplexes for between a hundred to $150,000. And they previously sold for four to $500,000. So, um, I cut my teeth going to Bakersfield every week, driving up there and overseeing the renovations of these little fourplexes. And, and we just kept moving on to bigger and better buildings, uh, 25 unit, a 90 unit, 128 unit, and just kept buying one building at a time and bringing one investor at a time. And yeah, fast forward to today, you know, 13 years later, we have a portfolio of around 6,000 apartment units. Um, we're building around 850 apartments, uh, here in Southern California, uh, we also have a portfolio of 11 self-storage properties around 700,000 square feet of self-storage. So, um, and I've dabbled, we had eight mobile home parks at one time and an RV park. So I, uh, I have a pretty broad breadth about real estate and following trends and demographics. And, um, I just love real estate. It's, it's in my blood, it's in my family's blood. So, uh, it's, it's, it's a natural, I'm, I'm just looking at myself as an investor and, and one investment class that I love the best is real estate. And, you know, it's been a pretty good couple of decades for you then, and, you know, past, you know, 14, 15 years, what on earth is going on with the real estate market? And for the purpose of this conversation, you know, I think we have a lot of Bay area listeners who are aspire to be first time home buyers or want to know, you know, what the heck is going on here. Broad strokes, just explain what's going on with the market right now. Yeah. I mean, these are some of the strong, well, it depends. The market is, is very general term. So real estate, you could look at there's single family residential, there's multifamily, then there's industrial self-storage, mobile home parks, retail office, still like, and then different parts of the country. So I think residential in those, you know, highly desired areas are booming right now and residential in a lot of parts of the country, probably most part are seeing huge growth. They haven't really built that many single family homes in the last few years. And I think all this trillions of dollars they pumped into the economy has sort of 
like taken the monetary supply up and like people are, are flush with cash stock markets at all time high. You're seeing a lot of inflation and uh, even wages are, are rising a lot. I, who would have thought like going into COVID, we were prepared for just another 09 basically. And we were hoarding onto cash and we stopped all the renovations on our properties and just really tried to hunker down. But the opposite happened. Um, values went up a lot. Uh, we had a short period of time where we had st- some struggles with collections, mainly in blue states where they sort of told people, you know, don't, you don't have to pay rent kind of thing. Um, we're pretty much beyond, behind that on mo- in most of our properties. Some of the states were sort of struggling with collections due to eviction moratoriums and stuff. But um, yeah, rents are spiking. I mean, we're seeing huge rent growth in most of our markets and values at, you know, all time highs. And um, it's just a weird time. You have interest rates now that are higher than, than cap rates. Uh, and a cap rate is a it's net operating income divided by purchase price. So essentially you want to buy at a higher cap and sell at a lower cap. It's sort of like, you know, uh, multiples when you're valuing businesses and stuff. And it's just a, a wacky time. Um, you know, we're using this time to sell a lot of our older assets and sort of B areas and upgrade to newer assets and more A areas because uh, the pricing is pretty similar for depending on the vintage. It's pretty close, the, the return profile. I'll ask one more question along these lines. And then I know Yasha has a bunch of questions. But for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to focus on residential real estate in hot areas. Our, our listenership is primarily from the Bay Area, Los Angeles, Austin, New York, Chicago. So all your usual suspects. And I think, you know, the question is, Keith, couple fold. Do you see a downturn happening anytime? What would precipitate a downturn uh, to this type of market in your view? Man, I mean, so if you look back 100 years, there's been every, you know, five to 10 years to 15 years, there's a recessionary period. Um, I guess this recessionary period and in, in, during COVID in 2020 was pretty short lived because of the economic stimulus. I think 09 was deeper and probably the early 90s um, was, was also just as deep. Um, and that's sort of the extent of recessions I've seen during my lifetime. Um, I'd say uh, probably rising interest rates, I'd say is number one, if rates really start spiking and I think, you know, you're buying, essentially your mortgage payment starts going up a lot. I think a lot of people are able to buy more expensive, more expensive homes because they look at the monthly payment pretty much. And with rates, you know, at historic, very low point, uh, they, they have spiked up a little, I guess the average 30 year rate is now in the, I don't even know, high threes versus low threes to high twos. And I mean, it's pretty crazy. I mean, over the last 30, 40 years, I think a lot of the growth in real estate is because of the dropping of the rates. And since the eighties or nineties, you've seen, you know, interest rates drop. So if that reverses, that's probably the, probably the highest risk. I don't really understand how rates are set and what sets them. And, but I think, you know, we, we always lock in long-term fixed rate debt on our commercial loans that are like 10 year loans. And we don't want to, we want to know what our mortgage payments can be for the next 10 years every month and not play with rising interest rates and having the, the loan come due at a time when the property value is depressed. So um, we're very conservative and stuff and we try to lock in long-term fixed rate debt. But I think that's probably number one um, because fundamentals are strong. Rent, rents are, are strong. Wages growth is strong. It's, you have problems once you know, they either overbuild new, new supply, which I don't see happening only maybe in certain markets where, where it's very easy to build, like, like in a Houston kind of situation. Um, and I think it, rising rates are, are, are number two. Um, but I think the economy is pr- pr- pretty strong overall right now. Yeah, I don't think we're going to have any overbuilding problems in California. 
Oh yeah. That's why I love California, man. I mean, it's like, you can't build this. My, my wife is overseeing our development. It's like, you know, I don't know how she doesn't have a full set of gray hair by now. It's fucking, it's brutal getting projects built here and the nimbyism and just, it takes four years to see any, you know, project built and cash flowing as opposed to like, I don't even know how quick you could build in Texas and stuff. So high, high barriers to entry. And it's just a very, you know, prestigious people want to live in California. It's, it's the best place in my opinion. So I think you're going to see, you know, a real estate market long-term that's still going to do well. It might not shoot up like we've seen, you know, rents and, and values. Uh, yeah. In the past, but it's yeah. going to go. Well, Sunil, I think that means that you're safe. All of your, your kind of real estate mogul to be hopes and desires. They're, they're going to stay strong here in California. So good for you. No, uh, no, no desires to, to become a real estate mogul like Keith, but you know, I'll, I'll live vicariously through him. Keith, I do have a question about, about, you know, let's just talk about the, the hot other areas. Everybody's talking about Miami. Everybody's talking about Austin and, you know, the articles about, you know, there's going to be a mass exodus. Everybody's going to peace out of here. What's your take on some of these newer emerging markets and where do they head over the next 10 years? And how does that affect California, if at all? Yeah. I mean, the, the numbers are showing, you know, we, we are having, you know, an exodus of people. Um, <clears throat> I think COVID accelerated that. I think it's probably temporary. I think you're going to see people coming back to these areas more. Um, you know, I think um, that's what's driving the values in the Miamis and Austins and Nashville's of the world. Um, I think you could build a lot very quickly in those kind of markets as well. So that'll taper off the, the price pricing. Essentially, when a Californian sells their home in Southern California, Northern California, they could go buy anything they want pretty much in Austin and it looks cheap. And that's closing in very quickly, obviously. But um, I think, you know, once they start living there for a while, I'm hearing of people that are itching to come back already. Um, it, it definitely has changed, uh, you know, but is, is it a permanent change? Uh, I, I don't think so. I, th- I think people are going to co- come back to California and, um, you know, this is, I think it's just sort of temporary. Yeah. Great state in the nation. We got that. Yep. I want to go back to the story about you first starting in real estate and finding a place in Bakersfield. So like, what, can you talk a little bit about like why that was a path that you chose to take? It sounds like you, you had a, an investor or friend that was thinking about this already. Was it your idea? Yeah. And here's why I'm asking, because as we have a bunch of listeners who are thinking about maybe trying to deploy some of the assets that they've accumulated over the course of the last couple of decades, real estate investing feels interesting and maybe tangible because you're buying an asset that you can go see versus buying stocks or, or kind of what have you. So I want to talk about kind of how you started, but really with a mind's eye towards how might someone else think about starting into this space? Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I like real estate is one of my mentors says is it's real, right? You could go see it, kick it, feel it, see the improvements you do to it. The land always has intrinsic value. You can't get hurt as long as you don't over leverage. You buy in an area where, you know, there's increasing population and, you know, you have holding power. Those, those things, you know, time and inflation are real estate's best friends. The reason I ended up in Bakersfield and that's where my journey started is um, my cousin and I actually started this business and his father was out in Bakersfield living during the week there, coming home to Pasadena on the weekends and saw the boom and then subsequent bust in that market. And he, um, it, they, that market got overbuilt with the single family homes and it got hit really hard even before LA. And that's all we could sort of afford in the early, early days. And 
that's the area we knew. And we were, you know, we were, it, I could have done well, probably buying in my backyard. I always recommend people, you know, buying in their own backyard. It makes it a lot easier, but um, that's why we chose Bakersfield. It had good fundamentals in terms of, um, you know, the people were in the oil and, and uh, agriculture business, which I thought would come back nicely out of the recession, which it did um, add, add a lot of jobs. And um, yeah, I'd say, you know, the real real estate is it forces you usually to hold long term. It's not easy to sell a piece of real estate, which I think is a feature, not a bug, right? In a stock market, you could click a button and liquidate, you know, 100% of your holdings, right? Like it's sort of scary. It's it's um, investing is very emotional, and I think having uh, illiquid kind of investments are actually good because it forces you to hold long term. And um, yeah, that's, that's why I, I like real estate for all the tax benefits, you know, the depreciation, the 1031 exchange potential, you know, all, all that stuff, plus the uh, illiquidated nature of it actually forces you to hold. Is is starting in um, the kind of multifamily homes a good place to think about? And kind of what's the rationale of starting there other than it's uh, in an affordable range for you as a first time investor with with your cousin? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, like you said, the dollar amount is is smaller if you buy, you know, a duplex, triplex, fourplex, even five to 10 unit compared to a larger industrial building or an office building or a shopping center. I mean, and it's, uh, people understand, you know, apartments more versus getting into the nuances of, you know, the lease has a lot more weight when you're dealing with, and, and the credit tenant, the tenant's credit worthiness versus individual, um, you know, renters where you're always going to have people coming and going and you're able to lift rents annually and reset rents to keep up with inflation. And I, I like my favorite type of real estate is one is actually like mo- either mobile home parks, um, or self-storage where there's not a lot of major CapEx needed over the years. Um, apartments are great because people always need a place to live and it's just, yeah, every 10 or so years, you got to do a refresh and, you know, revamp on the interiors of the units and spend money. And you have major systems that you have to, you know, over time start failing and stuff as a building ages, but you, people, it's like, like I said, smaller dollar amounts, they understand it. Um, it's in their backyard. It's, it's, um, you know, and there's a lot of property management companies you could hire too, or, or do it yourself. But I always, you know, recommend hiring third, third party management companies. And there's no right, right or wrong. Like you could start buying your own buildings, but you're going to see quickly, like it's the benefit is you could control, like when you sell it, refinance it, buy it, et cetera. But the, the negative is you have to plunk down a lot of cash and you spend a lot of time on it. So that's why I always encourage people to invest in their themselves. If it's their business, their job, their, their career, they're going to make the most money investing in themselves. And then, you know, looking at a group like Gelt or someone else to be their outsourced real estate arm for, for their family. So, you know, you, you give up a little fees, a little control, but over the long period of time, you could diversify and put in a little bit in a lot of deals and have all the same tax benefits and, um, and not have to spend any time doing anything. That, that's, that's, that's why I, I'm not like, I'm investing in my money in private with other private equity firms or VC firms. So I could get some diversity and I'm not the one forming private equity and running other businesses and, you know, picking companies to buy and whatnot. What, um, you know, we talked a little bit about OA and what happened there. And my, my understanding of what happened in OA is limited to the big short and reading Nate Silver's book a little bit. But as I understand it, you had um, these uh, investment banks taking highly speculative risks using derivative, derivative securities, um, just, basically making bets on whether mortgages would fail or not. And those risk calculations were, you know, wildly off. Um, 
Do you see any possibility of that happening again in, you know, the next whatever time horizon you want to call it? Like how, how risky is this market right now in your view? Um, I think we're cautiously optimistic. Um, I think you still have to come in with substantial down payment. It's still not, you know, what was it like the ninja loans, you know, no income. I, I forget you know, or you just breathe on the mirror and you're, you get the loan kind of thing, right? Like they were giving everyone a loan. They had negative amortizing loans, like just all kinds of creative financial products. Once you start seeing that, then you got to pause and it's like, well, we're probably at that point in the market. Um, that being said, like, even if you bought an 05, 06 and you, in good markets like in California and you held to today, your values are way up since then. So you got to just withhold you got to withstand tough periods. And my, my mentor says like the value of the building you buy could be down in the next two, three years, but in the long run, five to 10 years, that value is probably going to be up a lot. The cash flow is going to be up a lot. Um, you got to look at it with a long-term horizon and you can't really time the market. That's why, you know, I think you just got to press down hard on the, on the gas when there's blood in the street. And then as things improve, improve and get a little frantic, just keep lifting off and be more picky and choosy in what you're doing and, um, and more cautious. So on this subject of, um, you know, let's just say uh, somebody's listening to this who's a, you know, has some capital they want to deploy toward real estate, can't afford a single family home in one of these markets that we outlined, maybe has like fifty, hundred thousand dollars that they want to put to work in this asset class. What's your advice to them? Is it buy a condo? Is it, you know, do nothing? Is it like, what, how would, how would you get exposure to this asset class if you don't have the money for a single family home? So yeah, for like a single family home, I mean, it depends where, but like, you know, like uh, in the Bay area or Santa Monica, or, I mean, your, your starting prices are like 3 million up and you, you got to plunk down a million bucks. So if, 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 if I had a million bucks and I already had a home, I'd, and I wanted allocation to real estate, I'd put a hundred to 200 grand in you know, five to 10 deals with, with good sponsors that have a good track record that are good fiduciaries and, um, and spread it out, spread it out among, not all at once, but do it over time. And, um, and then just keep over time, keep increasing my dollar amounts as I start making more money in my job, in my career, investing in myself. And, um, and then letting my, try to make it where the money that is working for me versus I'm working for my money is, is high enough to pay all my living expenses. And that's true freedom. Once you have enough money coming in that you're not actually actively working for then that, that goes out, then you have real freedom of controlling your time and doing whatever you want and stuff, having your investments work hard for you versus the other way around. So um, I'd say, yeah, you put with groups like us, um, we, we could only work with accredited investors. Um, we could take checks as little as that 50 grand to hundred grand per deal kind of thing. Um, that's our most common check sizes, like the hundred grand stated minimum. I'll let someone come in for 50 or 75 if, if, if I'd like working with them. Um, and then there's no maximum. We have people putting in anything in like 25,000 or increments above that. Um, and there's other companies that'll take non-accredited investors too. It just, you got to balance the illiquidity versus I always say we project 10 year holds, even though sometimes we don't hold that long, just because I want the investors to know this is money that is, was going to be savings that they weren't going to touch. And uh, the rea- reality is we're probably going to sell before then we'll probably refinance and pull out money. But um, it, in the early days when we sold and returned money, the investors hated it because it's like, then what do I do with it? And now I got to pay all this taxes. So nowadays, whenever we sell, we always try to 1031 exchange and roll the money over. And you know, the way the rich play the game is you, you, you sell an exchange 
and you eventually pull out all your principal via refinance and all those dollars you pull out are tax deferred and just keep rolling the ball over and over or just hold long-term and keep refining, refining over the years. And um, that's sort of the, the way the rich play the game. And then keep borrowing against those assets as they increase in value. Can you break down like really simply for somebody who doesn't invest with a firm like yours, like what, what's the math look like? So if, if you take a hundred thousand dollar investment into your fund, like what should we expect or what, what should I be thinking about? I'm not necessarily thinking about this as a sales pitch for you and your fund in particular, but like, this is just a, a different space for me. So I'm really curious, like, how would I even think about this? I know how to invest in S and P indexes. I really don't understand how to invest in a fund for real estate. I don't even know how to think about it comparatively. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of options you can invest in. There, there are publicly traded REITs that you can invest in. There's private REITs that I, I don't love. Um, and then you have like uh, individual deals like we do or funds like where people you know, put commit towards a fund and then they go deploy into a lot of different deals. So um, <clears throat> I, I like as an investor being in deal by deal, because if you're in a fund, that means after 10 years, generally you have to liquidate everything and return capital to investors, which defeats the tax purposes of real estate and holding long-term. So um, I'd say uh, um, I just got sidetracked on my, we're, what we're, we're really thinking about the, like, how do I think about the math for it? So if oh I, yeah. I think you, you look, it depends on the type of deal, but usually you want a portion of the return, at least try to get half of the return from cash flow uh -huh. rather than just pure appreciation. Um, part of the return could be from forced appreciation. When we go in and fix units and lift rents, you know, by in, upgrading the interiors or, the curb appeal, the exterior, adding amenities. Um, you have development deals that you don't see any cash flow because it's your, you know, just raw land and it takes time. So, you know, to build and you have more higher risk, but higher potential reward too. So I think it just depends on your risk tolerance. Um, you know, you, hotels are higher reward, but higher risk. Um, you know, because they're, they're nightly, they got to reset the rates. Right. And like you have recession hit, boom, people stop traveling. Like it, it seizes up pretty quick, but there's usually opportunity to buy real depressed prices when, when the recessions hit. Um, and you know, we're, we're like, we're entrepreneurial and optimistic. We just bought a seven acre, um, office park and, uh, long-term we'll probably redevelop it into different use. But, um, I think, uh, as an investor, yeah, you got, you want to hit some kind of, Cash flow off the off the bat, if possible, um, with, with you know around half of it maybe coming from cash flow and half from from upside, and try to diversify uh, the amount of time you're investing and where you're investing geographically as well. We're not just putting all our investments in one market. We're in you know we're actively buying in four or five major markets. So, a uh, question related to kind of tech companies and what we've seen here at real estate innovation in the past five years. One that I get often ads for is Picasso. And like you see this shared ownership model and like that's becoming extremely popular for people who say cannot afford that single family home. What's your take on, on this model just in general? And like, what are the pros and cons things to watch out for? Yeah. I haven't <clears throat> studied hundred percent how they earn their money, but I, I like the concept because you know, people are already doing that informally, you know, pulling money together with friends and family and buying 
uh, homes. This way there's a added level of, of uh, they make it really easy. I think, you know, you're, 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 it's not a timeshare. You're, you know, I think they sell, they sell it in eighths. So you could buy an eighth, a quarter, half, like, and they probably help match you with other people that want that property. I don't think you could rent it right now. So it makes like sense if, if you don't want to have your home rented and stuff and have only owner occupants use it. And it makes sense because you're not using a second place, a third place, whatever that much time in the year, right? Like, you know, I, I would feel foolish buying a, a house and letting it sit, you know, for three quarters of the year or seven eighths of the year and, and, and paying full pop for it. So yeah, it makes sense. And you get to split the upside as well with the other people. I mean, I'm sure there's some nuances and like with the mortgage, I think you, you, you still can finance it tra- with traditional mortgage. Um, I, I, I believe they make, they probably make some money a little bit on the broker fees from these deals. I don't know if they up charge it a little bit. I don't know if they charge for management, but I, I, I like the, the concept and I think it's going to allow more people to own vacation places that otherwise wouldn't. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know people that have been buying homes that they then Airbnb and use when they're not Airbnb it. I think that's sort of an interesting phenomenon too. Um, as long as the, the areas allow, you know, short-term rentals and stuff. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for uh, creative ways to be able to use properties and um, new structures. And are, are there any specific tech companies in real estate that you're excited about? Like, so when you look at the tech landscape, you know, I think along the lines of uh, like, there were ones that were, that were hot for a while, like fly homes and really that did all cash offers. There's obviously your traditional Zillow, Trillia, Redfin type situations and your Picasso's. What do you see as like the exciting tech companies right now doing stuff in real estate? That's a great question. I mean, I like CoStar because they essentially have a monopoly on all this data and like we pay them monthly and along with all of our other peers. And I think it's been a great stock to own historically. Um, I think uh, Redfin is an interesting one. The, the, the price is in the toilet right now. It has great long-term leadership. And I think any company that could save people money, I think they've saved over a billion dollars in commissions. I think, you know, is really interesting. Um, I like their business model. I, I think Zillow also um, has done well historically. And, you know, I think um, Open Door will be interesting to see long-term um, how, how, how that business, you know, goes in different up cycles, down cycles, et cetera. I think that's an interesting uh, new proposition that the other guys started trying to copy. And I think a few failed and stuff, but I, I think that's an interesting one to, to watch. Um, what else? Um, you know, I'm biased, but I'm a co-founder of this company, Demuso, where we help our clients, which are property management companies and owner operators of large multifamily portfolios go hundred percent digital in terms of rent collection. So a lot of people are still paying uh, rent on paper check, which was crazy to me. And that's like usually the only check they cut, you know, every month is for rent. So um, we're, we're, we've enabled our customers to go hundred percent digital. And it's like amazing because they don't have to deal with the processing of these rent checks. There's a lot of theft involved in rent checks. Um, we're, we're on over 300,000 units and growing very rapidly. We're processing over like four or 5 billion a year. Um, so we're helping our customers tremendously save a lot of time. And, and Keith, I didn't even know people use checks anymore. That's, that's shocking. It's wild, man. Like, yeah, I think, um, 70%, I forget the percentage. It was very high. And then generally on, um, on move in, most landlords require certified funds, like a cash or check or money order 
because you could, what if you gave a personal check and it bounced and you're in, and if you're in a state in Cal- like California, you're, you're, you're going to sit in that unit for a long time before you get evicted. Right. It's like pretty wild to me, but they, they require certified funds. And we we're the first one to do like online certified. We take on the risks. We have, um, you know, we charge the same as getting a cashier check or, or money order. And it, it's um, really easy product to use and stuff. So I'm, I, I like what we're doing. I'm, yeah. I'm a little biased, but I, I like what we're doing there. And um, I appreciate that. Uh, I gotta, I'm going to go in kind of a different direction. I'm curious about um, how kind of state politics impact the real estate industry, the real estate, maybe the industry, less the market, but the industry in particular. So I'm going to zero on in California first. We're all all three yeah. of us live in California in this conversation. I'm going to ask you who you're voting for in, in the gubernatorial election coming up later this year. Uh, but yeah. first, let's start with like, what does the, does the state make it? Does the state of California make it easier for you as a real estate investor, or less easy for you as a real estate investor? Well, it's funny you're talking about states and politics. We're we've historically shied away from Biden in Southern California just because we were finding better yields elsewhere. Now the cap rates are actually higher in Southern California than in the faster growing markets like Phoenix and Vegas, which has historically always been higher cap rate markets just because they're more boom and bust. Mm -hmm. I think there's still going to be more boom and bust and risk adjusted returns, I think are now better here in Southern California. Um, Look, any piece of real estate, it's some dollars makes sense. So like when, you know, they changed the legislature in New York, I'm like, I talked to my team. I'm like, we got to start looking at this. Like, values got whacked, you know, because of the rent decontrol and stuff. And sure, you know, there, it's like a pendulum. I feel like when, when rents start getting really high and, you know, there's more political pressure on rent control and stuff, which sort of does the opposite. I think like you have people in, you know, San Francisco, LA, whatever, in rent controlled units that are paying next to nothing. And and same as like prop 13. I mean, it benefits the, the people that are already here. Right. Um, so it's more, it's, it's less statewide legislation and more in regions and in, uh, is it city down to city level or is it in well, for rent controls or? and stuff for city? I think, um, I think the whole state of California is prop is that the prop 13, you have prop 13 up there, right? With the, with your property taxes, they could only increase a certain amount where, you know, over a long t- term, the values have way gone past that. So you have someone that bought their house 30 years ago, that's paying like a thousand property taxes. The guy next door is paying 30,000 property right. taxes. It's yep. just like totally unfair. Um, and it, and not just for homes, it's for every property, right? The crazy thing is for, you know, industrial shopping centers. Like my parents have owned a strip center for a long time and they're able to pay very little in property taxes. But if someone bought the property from them today, it'll reset based on the new value. And, um, so am I, I hear, am I hearing that like, uh, regional politics, state politics don't really play a significant role in, at least in the investment theory that you have? Um, no, they, they, they do. I mean, we're, 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 you know, hesitant to buy in certain areas like, you know, Santa Monica, West Hollywood, which are really, really stringent. I mean, um, but look, people can make money in any market and they just, you got to have a stomach for it and you know how to play the game. Um, are you a fan of Gavin? Um, no, um, I'm not, my wife had me signed to recall him and stuff. So I'm definitely not a fan of Gavin. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Rick Caruso, who's running for mayor here. Another fellow real estate guy who, you know, I think um, if he runs the city like he runs his properties, we're going to be in good shape. They're they're pretty impeccable, and he's uh, he's had a good track record uh, over at USC and and, and doing um, different stuff for our city. And he's really passionate about you know cleaning up our our city here in LA. So um, my wife gets more involved in politics, and I, I'm just I, I know politics has a lot to do with business. So I'm I, I, I listen to what's going on, but I try to focus just on our, our business more. Yeah. Well, since we're based in Silicon Valley, you answered the question for SoCal. Let's just talk about San Francisco for a second here. Are you bullish on San 
Francisco. And what I mean by that is, you know, across both the political landscape, what you know about it, plus real estate. And so like, would you actively invest in San Francisco or Silicon Valley right now? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's definitely not one of our target markets, but I think, um, you know, a lot of you have, you're having a brain drain. A lot of people, you know, are leaving and it's real, but at the same time, I think if rents drop low enough, you're going to have new people come in. Um, I don't think the whole area is going to lose its industry. Like, like Detroit lost the auto and, or I guess a lot of, I don't even know exactly what happened to Detroit since the sixties, it was in decline until recently the population finally stabilized. I think, you know, they had the the white flight and so many people left uh, and didn't stick around there. But um, I think uh, there's a diverse industry in Silicon Valley and it's not just one industry. You have, you know, ton, ton of large companies and startups and, it's, 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 it's wherever the talent wants to live, the people in the jobs. And it's, it's, it's an interesting time. People can work more remotely. And I think uh, certain companies are having people come back to office. Some, some companies are not. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to watch. I, I, I just, I would, I would buy in San Francisco if, if, if the pricing came down low, low enough, I'd say. Um, I think, I think there's more intrinsic problems in that city versus like a New York per se. Um, which has roared back San Francisco still, I heard sort of like a ghost town and has a lot of issues with crime and, you know, just the streets and homelessness. And yeah, I, uh, I don't know. We'll see. What yeah. It's, it's hard to say. Well, we've asked you for a bunch of investing uh, advice on this stuff, but as a real estate guy, if you had, you know, money to deploy to like three tech companies right now, putting you on the spot, private or public uh, outside of your domain, what are a few companies that you're excited about kind of in the, in the tech world? And then, and then Yasha is going to ask a wrap up question. Oh, man. I mean, I was excited. I'm usually a pretty early adopter and I got my first Tesla in 2013. I bought the stock. I wish I kept adding to it and held it. I probably sold like 90% of it, like an idiot. I, I always, I heard, I was growing up. I was hearing my mom t- in the back of my mind. You, you, you don't get broke taking a profit. You don't go broke taking a profit. I think that's the worst advice especially if you're, you have high conviction and you're investing in a company that has passionate leadership with a high stake in the firm and high, you know, and just long-term vision and people that really want to work there. And so I would have said Tesla years ago, Netflix, I had really, really like, um, and I, 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 I still have pretty substantial amounts of that in like my retirement vehicles and stuff. I'm, I'm a big, just buy and hold kind of guy. Um, right now, I mean, I'd say, man, um, I try to be contrarian and I see, I think Alibaba came back a lot, right. But Alibaba was in the toilet. I, I, I was, you know, if I had more liquidity, I would have added to that. Um, I'd say uh, can't go wrong long-term. We, you know, with, with Warren Buffett and Brookshire Hathaway. Um, I think since the, the, the high growth tech stocks have gotten decimated, that one's actually done pretty well. Um, I, and then I would look at some of these high growth tech stocks that have gone down 50, 60, 70%, like, you know, I think like DocuSign is like a, a freaking verb and we use it every day. And um, I think Square is, you know, a great company. And there, there's, um, I, would, I would take a look at some of these, if you want to hire risk, a lot of these high growth companies that have just gotten killed, even they're lower, they're trading lower at even pre-COVID, which doesn't make sense to me because the numbers have gone so strong, like Shopify. I think that one, you know, I would take a hard look at. Um, I'd say, uh, 
um, there's a lot. You, know? you sound like you got a, a super reasoned approach, right? It's fundamentals are good. Hold it for a while. Um, things are going to work out. Seems yeah. like, seems super rational. Keith, it's been yeah. awesome to get to know you and have this conversation today. We appreciate kind of the wide ranging kind of topics that we've covered. Um, we do want to end on one particular question. It's the question that we asked to all of the guests that join us on the podcast. Um, and that's uh, specific to the social networks that you spend time on. You spend a little bit of time on, I uh, know, at least Twitter. Anywhere else? Um, yeah, I'd say Twitter. Twitter is probably 80% of my time. Then I'd say 15% of my time is Instagram. I use them for different reasons. Like Twitter is like the microphone and I can, I can broadcast to the world and it's public and I get um, to jump into conversations in and out. I could retweet things that I, I put a truth, like if I believe it's true and uh, LinkedIn is more business and re, you know, talking about our deals we're doing and stuff. And then Instagram I, is private and it's just friends and family and stuff. So they have different reasons, but, um, you spend some time I, there though. That's good. You got a, it's a healthy diet all, all across the place. I'm curious. Yeah. So the question we asked all of our guests is the following. If you could make a recommendation for a follow on one of the networks that you spend your time on right now for all of our listeners, who would that follow be? Yeah. I mean, in the early years of being on Twitter, I love following, uh, Mark Andreessen P Marka. I think he's just, I just call him the brain. He's so smart and makes me think, in different ways that I didn't usually think. And he had a hiatus for many years. I think it was more of like a, he got canceled kind of thing. And I remember he just stopped tweeting for a long time and now he's back and he's, he's having more fun with it. It seems like with more of the memes and I, I enjoy it following him still. Um, I, I enjoy following Elon Musk a lot. Um, I think he's just raw and tells you how it is and has fun with it too. Um, I've tried to follow people that are, I, I don't agree with too, but are, you know, um, opinionated and make me think a little differently. So I try to follow things that I'm interested in real estate tech, um, you know, self-help, just what, whatever areas. And I have a, a shortened list of like maybe 80 or 90, I call them the best brains. And I have my 50, I have like, I don't know, a thousand people I follow or maybe a few thousand, I don't even know. And I have like 80 that I go Check separately. So if you're, you could check out that list and see if you're on it or not. All right. Well, you heard it here first. So we'll, we'll send all of our listeners uh, to your Twitter profile and we'll get them to subscribe to that list of the big brains. Hey, uh, Keith, we really appreciate your time today. A great conversation. Um, maybe someday you might consider moving to the Bay Area. If you do, um, we'd be happy to open or welcome you with open arms. But I appreciate Sounds the like time. Thanks very much. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So Neil, um, what's the first move after this conversation with Keith? Are you going to go out and find a fund to invest in? Are you going to go start buying your own properties and flipping them? Like what's the, what are you going to do now? Not flip them. We obviously learned you shouldn't flip. Yeah. I, you know, I think I'm just going to uh, watch and admiration as people like Keith build real estate empires and, um, you know, hopefully someday uh, do, do a little bit more on that front. I mean, it seems like it's a really good, asset to invest in. and we Yeah. I mean, I think my biggest takeaway uh, through the conversation is this idea that investing is really about holding on to an asset uh, over a long period of time. And it's true in the stock market. It's obviously true in the real estate market, but using real estate as a forcing function so that you're not constantly kind of fighting with liquidity, I think is a pretty uh, interesting and important takeaway that, that, that Keith left us with. Well, in a world where uh, everything is going software and you know high growth tech, um, he made a really good point, which is real estate is real. 
<laughs> so uh, there's something to be said for tangible assets in a world that's become like really virtual and, you know, um, distributed. Real estate is real. That that might be the title for the episode. Uh, it was an awesome uh, conversation today. Thank you all for joining us on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. Thanks for joining us on this most recent episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. My name's Yasha, and on behalf of Sunil and myself, we'd like to say thank you for spending your time with us. If you love this episode as much as we loved recording this episode, please go back to the podcast player that you found us on, leave five stars, along with a comment we promise to read every single one. 